The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. You have your Bibles. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, just verses 11 and 12 today. Give attention to God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me pray again for us. Father, we need your help now. We always need your help. But Lord, to take this word and pray that we would not forget what we look like, that we would be doers of the word. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to put this into practice as we are bombarded with so much entertainment in our world, in our lives. And we pray that you give us a proper filter And we pray that your word would would speak clearly to each of us. Apply these things we ask, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to see three things in this text. Who we are, what are we to do, and why. And everything is doubled in the text. So, first of all, I mean, who, who are you? And last week we looked at, you know verses 9 and 10, and we looked at the seven things that we are now as the body of Christ. You're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, we're called out people, we're once not a people, but now we are God's people. We once were people who hadn't received mercy, now we have received mercy. But here, he gives us something else. He's saying, in light of all those things, you're a called people, you are sojourners and exiles. Okay, so We've been following that theme in in Hebrews. You saw that the faith that's exercised in Hebrews 11 isn't a faith that looks back necessarily in Hebrews 11. It's always a faith that looks ahead, looks to the reward, considers the reproach of Christ and says, okay, there are greater treasures. Look to the reward than all the treasures of, of Egypt right in front of them for Moses. And so faith has this forward dimension of like seeing that this present world is indeed passing away. And that the new heavens is, and the new earth is breaking in now. It's already breaking in. And so we need these eyes of faith to recognize that this is us. We are sojourners and exiles. So that's who we are. And then what are we to do? Well, there's two things we're told to do. One is negative and one is positive. The negative is we are to abstain. Abstain from the lust or the pleasures, the passions of the flesh, And we're to abstain, but then we're also to engage. Hence the sermon title, Abstaining Yet Engaging. How do we engage? Well, we're to continue to do good. Keep your conduct good is literally the idea rather than honorable. It's continue to do good. And even though people would see you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And so um, that's what we are to do. And then the why, well, the why we're told negatively and positively, first of all, 
We're to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they're waging war against our soul. I mean, this is the idea of man. This is like a civil war going on or an autoimmune disease that's actually fighting against the good cells. And you're telling me there's my flesh is fighting against my soul. And that's what the scripture is actually saying here. There's a war going on against your soul. So to we're to abstain from these passions, and we'll dig into that. And then the second is, the reason that we're to do good is the very people that would accuse you, maybe later they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Maybe they'll come to Jesus. Or it will be part of their judgment that they will be able to say, no, they, they, these people were good, and I should have listened. Um, scary thought. But that's the idea of the who, what, and the why. Okay? Now, let's kind of dig deeper. I mean, we're called sojourners and exiles, and if you're familiar with the book, if you look back to the very beginning of the book, this is the third time that he's brought up this imagery. Okay? So he's really wanting us to see this. The, the epistle begins with, to those who are elect exiles. Okay, and they're in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and on and on. He, he lists these places. So he starts off by saying they're exiles. And then if you look down at verse uh, 17, chapter 1, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he really wants us to see, just like if you remember last week, the, the prayer was, you know, when you go down in captivity down to, to uh, Babylon, pray for the city. For in its shalom will be your shalom, and its peace will be your peace. And so you're, you're, that's us. He's drawing the imagery of Israel going down into captivity, and three times Peter is wanting you to identify with the people of God that went down into exile so that you would know, okay, you two are estranged, taken away from your homeland. You're being put in a difficult place. And in this difficult place, sometimes they persecute you like they did in Psalm 137 where they say, hey, come sing us one of those songs of Zion. When they're down there, you know, and it says, down by the waters we wept in Babylon. And they're, and they're being teased. Hey, sing us one of those songs of Zion. And the, and, and the psalmist says, how can we sing when we're in such a difficult place? You see, Babylon wasn't easy, was it? Peter's saying the same to the people of God then that he's saying to them, it's not easy. And so for us, this isn't easy. This is a time of exile. And so as the people of God who are in exile, who are on pilgrimage, we should look different than the world. We shouldn't have the same divorce rates, the same addictive patterns, the same values, the same longings, the same desires. We shouldn't be watching all of the same shows, all the same movies, watching all the same reels, all the same TikTok videos. Like, how do we spend our time, our money, our conduct should look different? And Peter is writing to these readers saying, at the end of the epistle, he says, this is the true grace of God. So that's why I'm writing to you. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's writing that because it seems by implication that people were struggling in Peter's day to stand firm. They're wavering in their faith. They're struggling with why God was allowing them to, be, to, to suffer. Where is God in the midst of all this? Why do I feel alienated? Social status was struggling. One commentator identified seven problems in the 
Christian community that Peter was addressing in this, pe- in this epistle. And I just want you to listen to the seven things and see if anything's changed today. This is what one commentator says. Here's what the people of God were struggling with that Peter's writing to. They're struggling with physical and psychological pressure. Two, social ostracism and exclusion. Three, pull from the former way of life and a struggle to retreat back to it. Four, a surrounding seductive non-Christian worldview. Five, tensions and inconsistent behavior within the fellowship. Six, spiritual doubts about the reliability of God's promises and the future. And seven, Satan's constant deadly temptations and trials. Does that not sound like what we're dealing with in our culture? When you think of the idea of being a foreigner in a strange land, I think the scripture kind of has two ideas in mind with that. And it's the idea, one is a vertical picture, one's more of a horizontal picture. But let's kind of start with the vertical, is that the vertically, we kind of get this idea that Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is where? In heaven. It's not on earth, okay? So our hopes, our longings, our desires, our cravings, we expect little from this world. We have little expectations. So we're not disappointed when it doesn't deliver the goods because our hearts weren't there to begin with. If we're truly grasping Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven. That's the idea of the scripture that we memorize at the beginning of the service. For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So that's the idea of this vertical idea. And I think that's important for us. I was listening to Russell Moore recently, and he was saying that we need to be preparing our congregation now. Preparing, he's saying to pastors, prepare them now for the election two years from now. Because you can actually talk about it right now because it isn't happening yet. And everybody hasn't gone crazy yet. And people aren't tweeting and posting their political views. But he asked two questions. Here they are. Does your political party have to be in power for the kingdom of God to advance? I mean, if I believe in the citizenships in heaven and the kingdom of God's more important than the kingdom of man, does your political party have to be in power for the kingdom of God to advance? If the answer is yes, you need to repent. If the answer is no, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? What are we all upset about? God's purposes are going to be accomplished and he's going to continue to grow his kingdom. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. The church is to declare and display the kingdom of God, not a political party. So that's part of getting this idea into our heads and down to our hearts that we have no lasting city here. We seek the city that is to come. And yet we still live in this city and we're to pray for its good and we're to be a part of it as aliens and strangers. Now, on a horizontal level, what does this mean for us? And what Peter is trying to flesh out here, and he kind of circles to this a few times in the epistle, is this idea of conduct. And he uses that word several times in the epistle about our conduct. And he says in chapter 4, he says, the time that is past, verse 3, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, the nations want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
you've been plucked out from that, saved from that. So on a horizontal level, now we are aliens and strangers, but we're also feeling alienated and strangers from being crucified to this world and us to the world. And so we don't join them in this flood of debauchery, and they may malign you. And so here we now struggle with this idea of our own souls, this civil war idea. And the idea is this. If we don't abstain from the passions of the flesh, what are we doing? We're actually feeding the flesh that's waging war against the soul. I mean, you think of it like a civil war, and if you're, if you're giving... You know, you know you're supposed to be on this side, but now you're giving weapons and you're giving ammunitions to the other side to attack you. I mean, you could kind of conjure up some illustrations of Ukraine and Russia or something, but the idea is this. If we start feeding the flesh, which we, is very easy to do in this culture, then we're, su- we're supplying the enemy with bombs of shame. We're giving the enemy RPGs to blow us up with guilt. And we're giving the enemy grenades to tear us up on the inside. Why would I want to do that to myself? Peter is saying, don't do this. Don't, don't abstain from the passions of the flesh because they wage war. And it's this word for warfare against the soul. And it, it's not this idea that, you know, uh, the body is bad and the soul is good. The flesh, when the Bible describes the flesh, it's the remaining vestiges of sin. It's the sinful elements that are still in us. We've been delivered from the power of sin. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin at the cross. But we don't get delivered from the presence of sin until glory. And so we all still struggle with this struggle with the flesh. And so the Bible actually talks about this struggle. Just listen to Paul when he says in Galatians 5, But I say walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the, of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These two, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's the same idea of Romans 7. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are, are evident or obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so then he goes on in chapter 6, and he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For one who sows to his flesh, if you feed this flesh, this monster, you continue to feed it, The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. I find that to be one of the most sobering verses of the Bible. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Does that not sound like 1 Peter 2.12? 
Abstain, engage. Abstain, engage. Put off the, the flesh, but continue to do good as you have opportunity. Do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And when you do good, it gets noticed is what Peter is saying. And so one of the running themes throughout the book of 1 Peter is this idea of doing good works and doing good. And even when you're suffering, I mean, the theme verse of 1 Peter is 4.19. If you had to say, what's the theme verse of 1 Peter? 1 Peter 4.19. Let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls, there's the souls again, to a faithful creator while doing good. Doing good, just keep doing good. And so I don't like how the translation, um, a couple things. One, it's not an imperative in verse 12 of keep your conduct. You think, oh, that must be an imperative. No, it's a participle. It should be keeping your conduct. So as you're living as sojourners and exiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles good. Bad translation, honorable. It's not teme, the Greek word for that. It's the word good, which is a direct an antonym of evil, which you are spoken of as evildoers. He's bringing out a contrast. Keep doing good, even when they say you're evil, do good. Keep doing good. Keeping your conduct among the Gentiles good. Keep doing good. I think what we did yesterday, just as a body coming together as a church in a neighborhood, helping a lady who needed help on her home, and just doing lots of projects, drywall, Lots of putting in a stair rail on the, on the front steps, cleaning up all around our house, the outside, a lot of work. There was a lot that needed to be done. And it was, I thought it was a really good thing. And even the neighbors were taking notice of, hey, tell me about, you know, hey, we'd, we'd like to have some of this done, you know. <laughs> Maybe you could come back to, to our house sometime. Keep doing good is what Peter is saying, because he's reflecting on this idea, I think that Peter is borrowing from Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. You're the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, because it gives light in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so they see your good deeds, your good works, and they give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's the idea. Now, once again, I was listening to Russell Moore interviewing Jonathan, I think his last name is Haidt, H-A-I-D-T is the last name. He's a Jewish atheist, and that's what he, he acknowledges himself to be a Jewish atheist. He teaches ethical leadership at New York University Stern School of Business. He wrote this very intriguing article recently in The Atlantic called Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Anybody read the article? I mean, it is, it opens up windows, a lot of windows. And he has a lot to say, both to conservatives and liberals. And he's interviewed on several different places. He was on Glenn Beck. Uh, he was interviewed here by Russell Moore. And Russell asked him, well, okay, so what he's trying to get at is, his whole imagery is the Tower of Babel. The, ba- the tower fell in 2014. And we're uniquely stupid now because of social media, because of Twitter and the retweet button and the like button on Facebook, that basically we've given guns to four-year-olds. And the guns are now, we can dart everybody and we shoot them with our darts, especially anybody that's in our own camp that's a moderate and not an extremist. And there's only four people major writing. It's either alt, way right, way left, trolls and Russians. That are tr- and he's serious, these Russians that are stirring up the pot. 
Those are the four major writers. Most of us are on the outside looking at these four things, and we think, this is all there is. And you're wondering why everybody's depressed. And he's saying we're uniquely stupid because we're no longer listening to people in our own camp. And so he asked him, how do pastors, what do they say in their churches? And all that kind of stuff. He says, clearly, anyone speaking within the Christian tradition has enormous moral resources to stand on. My goodness, you have humility, grace, giving people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you have such rich moral resources. That's coming from a Jewish atheist who's looking at the church saying, you guys have it. And I'm over here saying, I don't see it a lot of times. And he's reminding, it's a rebuke of the, of the world telling the church, you have everything. You have humility. You have grace. Giving people the benefit of the doubt. You have such rich moral resources. Listen to the Jewish atheist. Amazing. You should listen to this podcast because it's amazing how Russell Moore and him engage on the level of ideas and it's such honest dialogue. Here's my worldview. Here's my world. Tell me what you think. And he really wants to hear what the Christian has to think. It's, it's amazing. What Peter and I would say Paul are guarding against with this idea of 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 and then Galatians 6 is they're guarding against two guardrails. Here they are. Carnal Christian, guardrail. Closet Christian, guardrail. And we tend to fall off one or the other. Carnality, closet. Run and hide or engage headlong into the world. And the carnal loves the world, right? And we're told not to love the world, the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of of what he has and does, these things come not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2, 15, 17. That's what we're to be about. And as we wrestle through this text, what we see as believers is there are going to be things that we're saying no to. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, there are going to be things on a daily lifestyle where we have to say the grace of God teaches us Right, that brings salvation. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but then to say yes to certain things. Up can, you know, uh, upright, godly lives in this present age. And so God has actually given us a filter in how to curate and filter all this media that's being shipped to the door of your hearts. And some of you guys are getting hit with it right in the service. It just comes. It's just coming. And, and you go to your phone, and it's just constant, constant. And our world, and this is one of the concerns I have of like, how do you see revival in our day? One of my big concerns is that everything is veneer. Everything in our culture is light and trite. It's trivial and jovial, veneer and vile, captivating and addicting. But the big thing is light and trite. Like, if you just sit and just scroll and watch TikTok videos and scroll on a YouTube feed and you start watching and they're funny, they're cute. There's no line of which you enter like, oh, here's bad, here's good. Like, there's no line. Like, how do you know when you're, how do you know when you're seeing pornography? There's no line that says, oh, clearly, I mean, obviously there are some things, but a lot of it is just this vague thing and everything is just light and trite and funny but nobody knows how to go serious anymore and talk about deeper stuff, real life issues. Everything's just light and trite. 
And so Philippians 4 actually gives us the, a grid to curate and filter. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, any, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about such things. So I could spend a lot of time learning about Amber, and I could spend a lot of time learning about Johnny Depp, because that's all the craze right now. And it's like, it's so trivial. And I think people watch it because they're like, they, they can't believe that their lives are such a mess. And they actually feel a little better about their lives, that their lives are actually worse than ours. And so they get this feel, sense of self-right, man, I feel pretty good about myself. I guess, my, I guess my life's not so bad after all. But it's just sad. And it's like, I don't need to spend my time in that. Like, that's just like, I could spend hours watching little YouTube clips of, of this trial, whatever it is. I mean, it's just crazy. That's our world. It's a bombardment of the culture. And so we have to say, okay, does that fit Philippians 4.8? Is that a good grid? Is that excellent? Is that praiseworthy? Is that worthy of, really worthy of reflecting upon? What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be in you. Interesting, he already talk, just talked about not being anxious for anything. But by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And now he's got the God of peace. Like, we wonder, we're, we're struggling with anxiety in our culture and struggling with worry. Like, Philippians 4, 6 to 9, that's, that's worthy of sinking some teeth into. And we have to weed out all these things that have to be weeded out of the garden of our souls so we can keep growing good crops and bear some fruit for the king. Because king is coming, big theme in 1 Peter. He constantly talks about, here he's talking about the day of visitation. I mean, the word judgment just runs throughout. It's, it's coming, it's coming. When you play a poker hand, what are you doing? You are putting in chips to communicate value. I have a great hand. I'm putting in chips. But at the end, what happens? Everybody shows their cards. And all the people that thought they had a hand or were bluffing, they lose. Are you playing a poker hand before God? Thinking that, hey, I can just live the way I want to live. I can think the way I want to think. I want to do the stuff I want to do in private. And it, it's a poker hand. Like, who are you bluffing? Like, God's calling it to account. It's going to happen. It's coming down. And all the cards are going to be revealed. And so, fold now. Repent. Just fold. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. But don't run over to the other guardrail now, which is the, is the Benedict option. The Benedict option is the closet Christian. Just a few years ago, the Catholic writer Roger Herr, I think that's how you say his name, he wrote a book, got a lot of press, called The Benedict Option. And there's a lot that he gets right. But I wouldn't agree with his, I think his analysis of the culture is spot on. But his solution to the problem is to retreat from culture to remain pure and set up basically closet Christian subculture. And he gets his solution from monasteries. And this is a quote from his book. Around the year 500, a generation after barbarians deposed the last Roman emperor, a young Umbrian man known to history only as Benedict was sent to Rome by his wealthy parents to complete his education, disgusted by the city's decadence. 
Benedict fled to the forest to pray as a hermit. And he's suggesting that that's the model that we should go back to as the church. Is that what Peter says in verse 12? Does Peter say, look at verse 12 in your Bible, because I'm just wondering if if your translation says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles invisible so that they never see you or hear from you, and they won't be able to say anything against you as evildoers, but they'll think about your bunkers and your monasteries and retreat centers, and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Is that what your Bible says? Huh. Maybe we should go back to what Jesus said in John 17 when he prays for the world. He says, I've given the church your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is bringing out this same vision here. Abstain, yet engage. Abstain from the flesh, engage the culture. I think we need to go back deeper than Benedict. Go back further. I just came across this week the epistle to Diognetus. I've heard a quote, but I've never read it. And you can read it online. It's 12 short chapters. I'm going to read you a chapter. Anybody heard of the Epistle of Diognetus before? This goes back to somewhere between year 130, somewhere in the second century. It's one of the earliest documents that we have of Christian apologetics. And it's called the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. And Mathetes is the word for learner and disciple from the Great Commission. Go and make Mathetes, go and make learners. And so he's appealing to Diognetus, and he, this is how it begins. Most excellent Diognetus. Okay, this is the second century. I can see that you deeply desire to learn how Christians worship their God. You have so carefully and earnestly asked your questions about them. What is it about the God they believe in and the form of religion they observe that lets them look down upon the world and despise death? Why do they reject the Greek gods and the Jewish superstitions alike? What about the affection they all have for each other? And why has this new group and their practices come to life only now and not long ago? And and different chapters go through that. Chapter 5 is called The Manner of the Christians. And this is what he says. I just want you to hear this. The Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men. Nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities... According to the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. Here it is. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. 
Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, at the same time surpass the law by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich." They are in lack of all things, yet abound in all. They are dishonored, yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay with insult, with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life, and are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred." What are they doing? They're living as sojourners and exiles, abstaining yet engaging. In today's culture, it's inevitable that if you're not over in this guardrail, that you're going to be labeled as homophobic, bigoted, arrogant, dogmatic, no fun, a stickler, a truth crusader, a terrorist, and a fundamentalist. And our job as believers is to outlove them, outlast them, continue to do good, not grow weary, and don't be surprised when we're maligned. Because we are following Jesus. And how was Jesus treated in this world? And how were his followers treated as his apostles and the people in the book of Acts and in the early church? We've never been in these great positions of power and influence. Very, very rare. We're in exile. Embrace it. Lean into the awkward and bear good fruit as his children. Let's pray. Lord, we are your called out people. And we thank you. We thank you for the privilege now to feast at this table, to be reminded that we will feast in the house of Zion. Fill us with hope. Renew our faith. Forgive us of our sins. There are many. Make us pure. Make us more like you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.